Hello, and welcome to The Worst Best Sellers, where we read about men's rights so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read Disclosure by Michael Crichton. Joining us for this early 90s virtual reality battle of the sexes is Caroline, a blogger and expert on both the American legal system and remembering 1993. Welcome, Caroline. Hi there. You might remember Caroline from our very first episode, and now we're all the way up to episode 20, so we decided to have her back, and also because we just like talking to her. It's true. 20 episodes is a lot. It's about 19 more well i guess about 17 more than i thought we would do <laughs> we've technically done more than 20 because we did a couple of half episodes That's that true. aren't counted in our official numbering system <laughs> oh goodness how time flies <laughs> time flies when you're reading garbage yes speaking of garbage <laughs> <laughs> That should just be our new tagline. <laughs> Indeed. So, yeah, um, I guess this is a book I had not heard of, nor had I heard of the movie version of, partly because I guess um, I'm a little bit younger and I don't remember 1993 very clearly. Um, I mean, I was eight, I guess, so anyway. But uh, Caroline claims to remember it. And she suggested this book, so we'll let her explain a little bit about why. Why she correctly suggested this book for this podcast. (laughs) I do remember the 90s. I actually graduated from high school in 1993. And I don't know that I remember this book when it came out, but I do remember um, there was a lot of discussion about it regarding the movie, which we'll get to, I think, later. But, But there was a conversation going on on Twitter where... Kate and Renata were talking about people were suggesting books for the podcast and a lot of what they were suggesting was chick lit and paranormal romance and things like that and then the mention was made that there's a lot of different kinds of bad bestsellers and it might be interesting to talk about some things that have you know theoretically grown-up men as their target audience and as someone who remembers the 90s and the age this was the age of um grisham who i almost well anyway grisham is maybe a little bit uh, a, a step above some not, of these people in some way not, not theo not, boone <laughs> yes he, he, he did not write that and then um david baldacci and some other ones that i don't who, that i i have read grisham and baldacci enough to to have opinions about their fiction um i'm not going to throw out some of the other names but i know who was like really popular at that time and there was a lot of this kind of this is a serious corporate story about grown-up men and their the problems of the modern day right ever and and Crichton, um who you know wrote like you know very interesting like science fiction concepts and like books about what would happen if dinosaurs came back and things like that he also you know was a creator on er so you know he did some stuff that i think is pretty quality but probably maybe should not have been writing fiction based on his perception of what the corporate world was like for a variety of reasons but what i think is really interesting is you look at a book like this um you know the writing is maybe not that great the characters are not actually you know developed in any interesting way and this and they get they really especially in the 90s they were making like prestige motion pictures about these stories and it's kind of like 
it's definitely it's aimed at a quote grown up audience, but is I don't know that there's really a lot more emotional or intellectual maturity involved in this than something like Twilight, and there is possibly even worse gender politics. So. <laughs> Yeah, that's another thing. For those who uh, don't remember our first episode, we did spend most of it defending Twilight, um, which is a really auspicious start, I think, for our first ever podcast about terrible books. But um, yeah, I think that is part of the larger point we're trying to make by reading all this stuff is that something like this is taken much more seriously than Twilight. And I think a lot of that is, um, you know, for the, for the reasons Caroline just outlined, that... Um, that it's aimed at grown men and it's about adults who wear suits to work and or not <laughs> and take them off at work. <laughs> uh, garbage. Um, yeah. So basically we're just, we're just really trying to provide you guys with some equal opportunity garbage here. So uh. let's, uh, let's dive into this garbage in particular and it's because it's pretty, it's pretty rank. <laughs> but, you know, it's... much like Jurassic Park, I think he is ahead of his time here because I really do think that he is, like, predating the men's rights movement by, like, 20 years or something. It's true. So this is a, uh, like Caroline said, it's kind of like a corporate thriller. And it, the things that you really need to keep in mind are that it was written in 1993 and that, <laughs> I don't even know, the technology, it takes place at a tech company in 1993, and it's just, it's very dated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the technology aspect and the, the virtual reality and all that has obviously not aged well. I don't fault it for that. I mean, I'm sure at 1993, people were like, virtual reality, that sounds awesome. Um, yeah, Carolyn, maybe just... you can speak to that. What did people think about virtual reality in 1993? <laughs> that was one of the reasons that I'm like, I feel like I should talk about the difference between the stuff in here that's just dated because it didn't work out that way. For He's got a whole thing where they're talking about having portable CD-ROM drives that you would use to take around with you and in some ways anticipating like what we are able to do now with smartphones. Um so I think in that way, you're like, okay, well, that maybe, maybe was what the direction some people thought we were going to go. So I can see that. I also remember that in 1993, it was fairly unusual to have a, a cell phone. I, the only person I actually knew with one was my uncle who had one that was in his car. And we used to make fun of him from always <laughs> for always calling from his car. So uh, the idea that like people are kind of impressed that this dude has a cell phone, um, there's a point in the book where people seem to know what email means, but don't know what internet means, which I thought was confusing. But on the other hand, I, I distinctly remember 1993 because that was when I went to college and I first heard about the internet when I was at college. And I remember like the week I was like, this is a really cool thing. And then it was on the cover of Newsweek. So <laughs> I, I, I could say, okay, he's writing then that might that might kind of go along with it. On the other hand, there are things like the way that they use virtual reality in this in the story. Like if you if you're not watching the new season of Community that is out on Yahoo, I would at least 
recommend watching episode number two of that because the dean finds out about 90s era virtual reality and is basically doing the things that are and the way that they use this technology is basically you have a machine with a treadmill that you walk around and wear a visor and it lets you walk and get files from different places. Now, I know Windows existed in 1993. So I, I did not, in the whole time we were reading this, understand wh- what was the advantage of this multi-million dollar virtual reality system versus just clicking something on your desktop with your mouse. Did anybody, did that make sense to anybody besides me? Yeah. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that it made sense, made <laughs> sense, but I remember like... As a kid, a little later than 93, maybe like 94, (laughs) 95, watching a lot of cartoons and TV shows and movies where like this was what they thought the future was going to be, that there were everyone was going to have these visors and it would be like you could go anywhere in the world without leaving your house and that you could do things and it would all be like interacting in the real world, but sitting on your couch still and and I I don't like looking back on it now I'm like why would we ever think that that would be a more feasible <laughs> way to do things than the way that things did shake out which is you know just using your mouse and using the computer to point and click and pull things out and save things but I definitely 100% remember like in the moment in the mid 90s where like that was the cool future where Technology, we interact it with things physically via virtual reality goggles. So I'm going to blame Tron and Star Trek for that. Um, so, so anyway, he, the, the main character in this book is named Tom Sanders and he works at a tech company called Digicom that does a bunch of stuff, including this kind of, you know, not very early 90s uh, virtual reality. But that's sort of the B plot and the A plot is that they're a, Digicom is about to have a merger with another company, and Tom thinks that when they merge, he's going to be in line to be the new, not vice president, is it? Yeah, like, well, not, he's going to be, essentially he thinks he's going to be in charge of all the manufacturing, because in addition to this virtual reality, that's kind of like a, a thing that one department is doing on a lark. They're really making their money on the manufacturing of CD-ROMs. And think of a CD-ROM as like, it, it would be portable CD-ROMs that you could use almost like a disc man, except to read books and things. It's called and, a twinkle drive. Yes. And um, cell phones are the other things that they manufacture. And he, especially with the CD-ROMs, he's like in charge of that of the development and the manufacturing and all of that. So Tom and everyone at the company thinks that he is going to be made put in charge of all of these manufacturing and kind of product divisions of the company. And he gets to work on the day that they're going to announce this big merger and all the promotions. And he's late because his no good wife can't child rear correctly. And he has to do everything in his house because his wife can't do any housework because she's too busy with her job and her, you know, woman problems. And he unfortunately misses the big meeting where he finds out that he is not getting the promotion, but rather this woman, Meredith, is getting the promotion. And Meredith just happens to be his ex-girlfriend from 10 years ago, 
who he doesn't remember. He remembers her being his ex-girlfriend, but for some reason, the entire length of their relationship is a blur in his mind, and he cannot recall any concrete facts about their time together. Like, I was literally waiting for a reveal that she had been drugging him to keep him from remembering it correctly. But, like, they were literally living together. And there's a point later in the book where he says to his attorney, well, do you remember anything about who you were dating 10 years ago? And she's like, oh, yeah, that's a good point. No, it's not. I know. Yeah. Like, it's really not. I mean, unless you were a small child 10 years ago, it's not a good excuse. I mean, we're, I, I, you know, I'm joking about how I barely remember 1993, but 2005, I'm definitely there. I've got that one. Um, yeah, I can recall more about the first girl that I ever dated over 15 years ago, long distance, for four months, than this guy can remember about a like multi-month-long live-in relationship that he had as an adult. I and but it's not a plot point. Like it's not aside from him just commenting again and again that he can't really remember it well. It's not like and then they found out why he couldn't remember it. I mean it's it just... kind of it kind of is actually because they keep leading up as if it is going to be something like maybe he was drugged or something. And then I guess I'll just dive in and say it, he had forgotten that he'd walked in on her cheating with him. And so I think we're kind of led to believe that he, like, blocked it all out as some kind of trauma because of that. Really? Which, yeah, no, it's very, not very well developed, but I got that from it, too, which I was like, why is he so traumatized by by this person that he, like, repeatedly suggests it was not a very serious relationship he didn't care about very much? So it's just, I don't know if it's just, like, his masculine maleness couldn't handle it, which, you know, we'll get into more of that because that may be the, the issue. Right. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so- this dumb bitch is now his boss. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and by the way, my favorite thing, I, I guess I have a lot of favorite things, but before the meeting, like a few days before that or whatever, he's talking with his bro workers and they're like, oh yeah, you think you're going to get that promotion, right? And he's like, yeah, I don't know. I heard a rumor that a woman might get it. And like, everyone's like, mm. and like nobody, it's not like a specific woman, just like a woman. And I just kind of like love that gossip. <laughs> and I forgot my favorite part, which is that while all this is going on simultaneously, he's in kind of constant contact with the head of the manufacturing plant in Kuala Lumpur, who is telling him there's all these problems with their new, like, super fast Twinkle CD-ROM drive. That's one of the big um, perks to the merger for the company that's buying them. (laughs) So this guy, Arthur out in Malaysia is talking about how there's all these problems. And one of the main problems is that no one can find the factory foreman because he got cursed and Mm. he, he's taken it very seriously and disappears. And he might die from the cursing. Yes. He could die from it. Like he, he's in a hospital and it's very serious and he might die because he was cursed. Also the cursed man's name, Jafar. So a recurring theme in this plot is occasionally get email updates regarding the status of Jafar's curse. (laughs) (laughs) 
do do we want to, to spoil like the the truth about Jafar, or are we saving that for later? Let's let's dig in, and because it, okay. it is a much bigger plot point than I thought it would be. Yes. But okay, so like the first day, Meredith Johnson is the ex girlfriend, new boss. Um, they have, you know, some meetings, some, like, welcome to the new, you know, merged company, like, whatever. Actually, the merger isn't finalized yet, which is also a stupidly part of the plot. But she's still hired. Anyway, so, like, just kind of, like, welcome to welcome aboard, Meredith. And then she calls Tom into her office for a meeting at, like, 6 p.m. And then she just starts immediately seducing him. Like, very hard, like, very explicitly seducing him. Um, she's got wine. She's got condoms. She's, like, good to go. She, like, rips his clothes off. They're, like, kind of, you know, kind of doing something. And then he's, like, no, I can't do this. I'm married. Like, bye. And she is enraged by this. Well, I think it's it's important, too, to say that while, like, she just, he is very much, like, not inviting this. Like, she's like, God, you have a good ass. You always had a good ass. And he's like, all right, so about those CD-ROM drives. And during it, he, like, pulls out his cell phone to call someone to make a business call. Well, before before they're making out. Yeah, like, before, before like, the meeting. During the meeting, um, he calls someone on his cell phone to make a business call. And she's already done a couple of these weird, like, you have a really nice ass. And, like, oh, like, I used to fantasize about you when I was married. And so he's on the phone making a business call. And it's very obviously a business call. And she just jumps him. <laughs> Like, and he drops the phone in shock, and she's just, like, making out with him while he's literally talking to someone about, or talking to an answering machine about CD-ROM drives. So, that that was not very well planned. Um, Did, I have a question. Sure. Does she give him a blowjob? She's doing something. Yeah. I it's kind I, of in the vein of, like, other romancy things we've read where it's like, I'm not real clear what's happening, but something's sexy. Because I thought there's all this stuff about what she does with her mouth. So I'm like, okay, they're having oral sex and he's not into it, but he also hasn't stopped it. But then that never comes up again when they're talking about it. So I assume I was just reading it wrong. Maybe when we get to the dramatic readings, we can sort this yeah, out. Yeah, we are definitely going to be reading that. So we'll, we'll come back to this and tell you like what exactly Meredith does to him. Because much like the book, we not only get this this endless, unsexy scene, but we get it like rehashed because there is eventually a legal drama involved in this, if you haven't yeah. figured that out yet. And we by, get by to... By eventually, you mean the next morning. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so, so like, we, it she's, gets like, re- screaming at him as he leaves about how she's going to kill him and he fucked everything up. And he's hella traumatized, apparently, by this. And, like, goes home and is weird and doesn't know if he should tell his wife. And then there's this really weird aside where his wife tries to initiate sex and he says he's not into it and she gets mad at him and he goes off on this tirade half narrative half like actually spoken out loud about how you know women think they're so persecuted and the patriarchy doesn't exist because men cannot want sex sometimes too and so that means that women have it easy and goes to bed eventually and when he gets to work the next morning pc phil the lawyer for their company tells him that meredith has filed a sexual harassment suit against him 
Which I never understood because she is his boss. Yeah, so technically, according to yeah, the way these rules work, she can't do that. Well, or which is to say, if the, because we do get a big explanation of Title Seven later on, like there's probably situations in which that could apply, but it's never differentiated between her as his boss harassing him and him harassing her like that there would be it there would be a difference in the way that that's considered at least and that the book doesn't really so it, it that that part's confu- confusing to you know just to start with but anyway go ahead so he's like oh like hell no she harassed me and they're all kind of like haha she's super hot nobody would believe that and then he goes off and gets a lawyer because he is just mad as hell and not going to take it anymore. These women have gone too far. And so he gets a woman lawyer to represent him. Louise Fernandez, who does not look Hispanic, which is apparently important. Yeah. Because <laughs> he assumed that she would. Yes. Yeah. And again, not relevant to anything at all. And um, like there's some there seems to be some effort in this book to make him make he thinks he's appearing even-handed because he's like well they got a lady sexual harassment lawyer and she agrees with everything he says you know kind of thing so anyway she's louise is not as terrible as tom but so he goes and he tells her the whole story and she essentially says like yep sounds like you were sexually harassed but you're a man so there's nothing and it happened behind closed doors with no witnesses so there's really nothing you can do so you know, I'm sorry, you're pretty SOL. And, and they're going to trans. Basically, the idea is that because she says that he harassed her, she don't, didn't want to initiate formal discipline. She's just basically saying she doesn't want to work with him. So, in effect, that means he's going to get transferred to and Austin. To Austin, which, which is terrible. It's a garbage um, city. It gar- yeah, it's garbage city. And his wo- his wife does have a job and doesn't want to move there. So he'll probably get divorced. So once again, a woman is ruining his life. And But then also the other thing is that the reason he's really fighting this is eventually they're going to spin off a new division and he will get millions of dollars in stock options. So again, this if, if you were actually writing a legal thriller, which this is not, there might be some interesting <laughs> issues here about whether, okay, is this, you know, is he entitled to this? $8 million. But the main thing is we're supposed to, the basically the stakes in this story are one, a this um, well-placed corporate executive might not get his millions of dollars in stock options three years down the road. And then of course the other thing is, um, which is obviously more important, somebody might believe a thing a woman said versus a thing a man said. Yes. The worst. Terrible. So, and the Sort of a footnote to that is people constantly throughout this book are saying nobody is going to believe the jury is not going to believe that a good looking woman harassed a man and he didn't want to be part of it. Well, like, obviously, the fact that this book exists, it says that people are willing to believe that narrative, you know, otherwise, why would you write it? Also, as um, Tom starts poking around and he finds there's like so many rumors or like she's had so many male assistants quit or be fired. Um, and also, she's super close to the CEO of the company, and she's had plastic surgery to look more like his dead daughter. And <laughs> and they don't know if like 
if they're having like a sexual affair or just only this like weird fake daughter situation. But either way, everyone everyone knows that Meredith Johnson is shady. So it's like, well, if everyone knows this, then why does no one believe his claims against her? I mean, a, a few people do, including one person who has been anonymously emailing him as a friend. Which turns out to be, this is the one thing that I remembered from seeing this movie in 1994, is that a friend is actually somebody whose internet login is Arthur Friend. So it's just totally a coincidence that it seems to say it's from a friend. Yes, because then, you know, it wasn't so easy to create an email address in those days. So instead, it's easier to create a character named Arthur Friend, who is a professor (laughs) who's on sabbatical. So students have been going into his office while he's away to use his email address, including a student who is the son of another employee of Digicom. Yeah, so the majority of the book is Tom and his lawyer, Luis Fernandez, trying to, because it's a very tight time frame, like, the book starts on a Monday, and the big press conference that announces the merger is going to be on Friday, so it's very important to all the Digicom executives that this is dealt with and over before the merger, so that they can wipe themselves clean of it and just go ahead with it. Um, so they're in a very tight time frame. They yes. they have to, um, I think, yeah, she, he is sexually harassed on a Monday and they want to get it all resolved before Friday because that's when they're going to have the big press release to announce the merger. And so they don't want any of this like embarrassing stuff um, out in the public. So it's very like immediately when he comes back and says like, I'm following, fi- uh, filing a sexual harassment claim, then they're like, oh, well, tomorrow morning, like, we're going to go, we're going to try and mediate this so that we don't have to bring it to court. And um, the lawyer sends out her, like, lackeys to try and dig up dirt on Meredith. And that's when they find all of these other men who she's had relationships with. And all the while, he keeps getting these emails. Because at first, they're trying to dig into the last place that she worked before Digicom. And they get an email from a friend saying they're looking at the wrong company. So then he, Tom realizes, oh, the a friend means I should look at Digicom. And they find all of those subordinates that she had sexually harassed. And he investigates all of those. And like a couple of them are like, no, I won't file a claim against her like she's too powerful and one guy is like yeah like I used to have sex with her all the time that's just how these things work like I have sex with all my assistants now that I'm the boss like that's just (laughs) corporate world so yeah so this one dude was into it and there's this other guy who's obviously gay and like is terrified that she kept coming on to him and is a trying to like hide from having to talk about his sexuality and that part was pretty upsetting actually <laughs> a lot was upsetting yeah. um, true. but anyway so this book it's long strings of tom and louise having these conversations that are like well now that women are getting more power it's only natural like when 50 percent of women have 50 percent of executive positions then 50 percent of sexual harassment claims will be filed by men against women and you know just and it, it's 
it really is kind of like this whole like red pill situation where Tom's like, oh my God, like women have so much power and we like never realized. And now it's just gone too far. And there's just a lot, a lot of that. Yeah, there's a lot of like, oh, like, you know, the patriarchy doesn't exist because women are getting more power. And soon, you know, now that we're in this new age where we recognize that women are equal, soon women and men will be equal and we'll realize that when all things are equal, you know, it doesn't, men aren't sexist. Like sexism doesn't exist. Like both men and women act like this and we will find out about that once men and women are equal and it's going to happen literally any day now like probably by like next week mm-hmm. you know there, there is no patriarchy this issue only happens because only about five percent of women are executives yeah. this actually comes up it's like yes. i guess that's just what god intended yeah so it's just it's so weird and then there's a conversation about um, so have we gotten to like every time they go into a desp- deposition, Meredith gives like crazy supervillain speeches? No, go for it. <laughs> so she basically, I, I can't because it blurs together because there's a couple different times that they're talking to her, and she just like she can't be talked to on a rational level. She's like, well, he wanted it, and then whenever they keep change because she's did, done a terrible job of covering her tracks like there were there was a witness there was like a cleaning lady outside who heard her threatening him she got her assistant to like buy the wine and condoms you know and she literally jumped him while he was on the phone talking to what a- appeared to her to be a business associate like she didn't plan this very well She's so, just, so it's clear that she's used to getting away with this and not having it be questioned because every other man that she's done it to has been like, oh, well, no, no, believe me if I say a lady harassed me or like it's emasculating or like or I'm gay or like whatever, you know. Yeah. So they but then at some point where she comes down to the fact, OK, he humiliated her because they were going to do it. And then he just changed his mind and walked away. And that was so humiliating. And men do not have the right to change their mind and walk away. Um, and then there's a whole I think it's between Louise and Tom about how, well, you know, feminists say that women can change their mind even even if they start making out or whatever they can still change their mind before you have intercourse and it's and it could still be rape but what if men have the same right i'm like has anybody besides meredith on her crazy supervillain speech ever said that men don't have the right to change their mind about sex i guess tom's wife feels the same way right right anyone besides a woman written by michael Crichton? (laughs) (laughs) so um... so strange so they um the they after he investigates all the people who work for them and they find out that um he had thought that he had dialed a certain person because of the way his cell phone works and was talking to their answering machine about the product but instead he had dialed someone else so there's a whole tape of the entire encounter on this guy's answering machine and he saved it So they have that as evidence. And that's kind of around the time that she changes her tune and says like, oh, I was just humiliated. That was all it was. And uh, a friend emails them again and says, no, you're still looking at the wrong company. And it occurs to them that um, what she means is the company that they're merging with, that that is where they should be looking for her like weird sexual whatever escapades. 
And they discover that she has been sleeping with one of the guys behind the merger that's about to happen. And that's where it turns into, like, a tech thriller for 50 pages. Yeah. A, a, quote, tech thriller, which involves <laughs> them putting on their virtual reality masks and just walking around through the hallways of files, which I was, I, it's actually, because I had seen the movie, I had not read this book. And so I was wondering, as I was getting to the end of it, I'm like, well, maybe they don't actually use the virtual reality in the book. <laughs> maybe that was just something they put in the movie to make it more interesting. But no, they do. And, you know, that part was kind of fun on the level that, like, this is idiotic, but, you know, I can see what the appeal would be if, if it was 30 years ago, I guess 15 years ago, and nobody knew anything about computers. Yeah, so they use this tech, this virtual reality thing to um, spy on this guy who she's sleeping with at the other company, deleting all of these files. Um, and it turns out that Meredith had secretly taken over the Kuala Lumpur manufacturing facility and changed all the specifications because that thing about the CD-ROM drives not working, that's been a, a consistent plot point where they're taking them apart and they're trying to figure out why they're not working right. And they've discovered that it was human error, that instead of making it a mechanical process that puts it together the way Tom had insisted when they built the facility, Meredith had secretly gone in and changed things around so that it was... Um, physically by humans put together and that they're doing it wrong and they're messing it up and it's dirty and they're using the wrong air filters and that's why everything's broken and the reason that Meredith had kind of given in to him in the mediation sessions and had admitted to it was because although he was offered kind of like well you just keep doing your job and she'll just keep doing her job and everyone will have like There'll be no problems and no penalties and everything will be okay as a settlement. They're planning on pinning the non-working drives on him at the big merger meeting tomorrow unless he can come up with enough evidence to prove that she had changed the manufacturing and it's her fault. Which the reason she had done that was because she wanted to save money, but she's a woman and she doesn't know about technology and so she didn't realize that the chips are so delicate that making these cost-cutting changes would um, ruin everything. Yeah, there's a couple times where they're at like big meetings and she like starts spouting off jargon and sounding super confident, but then like all the men at the meeting are looking at each other because she's speaking nonsense. She's just saying these things that don't really mean anything to look good because women don't understand technology. They just want people to think they're smart. Yeah, she's like, Twinkle Drive, email, ROM, I rest my case. She's basically like when he, when in the Lego movie, when Unikitty goes to the business meeting, yes. that's Meredith Johnson. <laughs> but sluttier. <laughs> so, so I was never really sure if the sexual harassment was actually part of the strategy to get Tom out of the way, or if it was just like a fringe benefit for her. Ha ha, I will seduce my old boyfriend as part of this diabolical plan. No, it yeah. was it was part of the plan because she was hoping that he would then just go to Austin and take that first deal, I think, and then they wouldn't have to deal with any of this. 
Because which and by the way, they happened in the past to her is that she's raised these claims against men and they've quietly transferred to other offices. Oh, okay. And and then they they were also secretly plotting to shut down the Austin office too. Oh right, no, they were gonna sell it. Yeah. So yeah. So, so he so, would have lost his job anyway. Right. But. Yeah. So anyway, though, he goes into the virtual reality. He finds. Um, the files and some other, and he finds that Jafar, the person who had supposedly been cursed, is actually just like a very honest businessman, and he has all this evidence about what Meredith's done, and he's been like trying to get it to them, but they have like threatened him to make him stay away from it, so that's why they were getting this weird story about him being cursed. But how- I forget now. How does he end up getting the evidence to them? He has to do something weird. He faxes it to them, like, oh, little by like little. And then he sends them. Because for some reason, in 1993, every time they have an overseas call, they do it by some sort of, like, proto-Skype where it's a video call. And they record every single one. And oh. that is just how they communicate overseas. Right. So he has all these saved calls because they deleted them from the seattle computer system but they didn't delete them from the malaysian computer system so jafar is able to download them all and send them to tom before the big merger meeting in the afternoon amazing if so can we just talk about how this whole story about Jafar being cursed and having to go back to his like village headman or whatever is just super racist. Oh my god, it's so racist. Yeah, she couldn't have just been like, oh, like he has cancer or like something normal. <laughs> <laughs> his, his, his grandmother died and he's the executor of the will, you know, like why? And it's obviously assuming though that the readers of the book are going to buy this because I guess that's just how Malaysian people are. And then at the end we're supposed to maybe think oh maybe I shouldn't have assumed that. It's like shut up Michael Crichton it's (laughs) your book. We haven't talked we need to wrap this up soon but we also need to talk about PC Phil who's their their lawyer and who has like previously fucked things up by being too PC. So like for the Kuala Lumpur factory he insisted that they needed to hire equal numbers of men and women even though like their religion forbids that and it was like a huge kerfuffle. Yeah, he's like done all of these things like in the name of equality that are just comical and nonsensical and like uh, he's just a joke. Like throughout the whole thing, he's the one who he ends up like having leaked all of this stuff about the sexual harassment cases to the media to make Tom look bad. But then it just comes back and makes him look worse. And he also had been Tom's BFF for a long time and was was like the best best man man at his wedding. And I thought that, I don't think it was ever clear, but I thought the person that he had walked in on Meredith sleeping with was presumably Phil because one of the things that he had repressed was this whole story about Meredith like, because Phil was like crashing with them when he was getting divorced or something. And there's this whole thing about Meredith like, like vamping on Phil and like lying down and like spreading her legs open so they could both see it, you know? And that was one of the things that Tom had repressed. So it was just very like, like, you know, I don't know. Meredith is just like weird and gross, you know, like nobody acts like that. She's kind of like Meredith from the office, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Like if Meredith from the office had been in a position of power. Right. And also to further the office comparison, I would say PC Phil is like, 
if you asked Michael Scott to write a description of Toby, the HR guy, <laughs> he would exactly describe PCFL. But I, th- I mean, Toby, I think in actuality, or at least as perceived by the viewer, is more competent and normal than PCFL. But I think he's what Michael thinks all HR people are like. Wow. Uh-oh. I wonder if, if I would now want to have like the version of this novel that Michael would write that would be set at a paper company. <laughs> uh, yes. Starring Agent Michael Scarn, sexually <laughs> harassed victim. <laughs> Amazing. Just to wrap up the plot. So he has all of these, he's able to get all of these faxes and files and everything proving that Meredith is the reason that the twinkle drives aren't working. And at the big merger meeting, instead of going by the company line, he passes them out to all of the executives and says, like, no, like, Meredith Johnson is the reason why this is happening. And here's the proof. And here's a video of her at the factory because she claims that she's never been there. But here she is on the Malaysian news. And she's the reason why everything is garbage and publicly humiliates her. Mm -hmm. And so then the vice president job goes to this other woman, Stephanie Kaplan, who's just like a normal, competent woman. And it turns out that her son has been sending the A friend emails because he goes to the college that Arthur Friend teaches at. (laughs) And I, I kind of thought that it was implying that the entire thing was Stephanie Kaplan's long con, but I'm not sure if that's what Michael Crichton intended or not. Yeah, I kind of got the impression that, like, Stephanie Kaplan saw when she saw that Meredith was getting the promotion she was just kind of like well this is bullshit and then kind of started the whole ball rolling to prove that she's completely incompetent and needs to be ousted but without doing it herself so that she still looks good enough to get the promotion that Meredith got in the first place so she does end up with the job so that that is a kind of happy ending and Tom gets to keep his existing job he doesn't have to go to Austin Plus, then she tells him that, like, I guess the guy who Meredith had been having the affair with at the other company was their chief financial officer. So she's like, in a couple years, he's going to be quietly fired and I'm going to get that job. And when I leave, like, I'm going to give you this job, FYI. And it'll be after we spin off the company. So you'll already be a millionaire and then you'll be a millionaire and a vice president. Yeah. So, hooray for Tom. Yeah. Fuck this book. All right. Um, let's move on to dramatic readings. If you have more questions about the plot, so do we. <laughs> um, so, the first the first one we're going to read is the actual seduction slash harassment. And I will be Tom, who is also the stupid narrator of this book. And Kate will be the lovely Meredith. And just so you guys know, I'm actually going to be skipping over some of the, like, gross and annoying thoughts that Tom has. We're going to keep the dialogue, but I'm going to skim over some of the, like, narration. All right. So if, if you recall, the she, um, they're in a meeting, and Tom had been on another business call. Well, anyway, Mark, if there is a significant change in all this, I'll contact you before the meeting tomorrow and... Forget that phone, Meredith said, coming up suddenly, very close to him, pushing his hand down and pressing her body against his. Her lips mashed against his mouth. He was vaguely aware of dropping the phone on the windowsill as they kissed, and she twisted, turning away, and they tumbled over onto the couch. 
Meredith, wait. Oh, God, I've wanted you all day, she said intensely. She (laughs) kissed him again, rolling on top of him, lifting one leg to hold him down. His position was awkward, but he felt himself responding to her. His immediate thought was that someone might come in. He had a vision of himself lying on his back on the couch with his boss half straddling him in her business-like navy suit, and he was anxious about what the person seeing them would think. And then he was truly responding. She felt it, too, and it aroused her more. She pulled back for a breath. Oh, God, you feel so good. I can't stand the bastard touching me. Those stupid glasses. Oh, I'm so hot. I haven't had a decent fuck. And then she threw herself back on him, kissing him again, her mouth mashed on him. Her tongue was in his mouth, and he thought, Jesus, she's pushing it. He smelled her perfume, and it immediately brought back memories. Meredith. Oh, don't talk. No, no. She was gasping in little breaths, her mouth puckering rhythmically like a goldfish. He remembered that she got that way. He had forgotten until now. He felt her hot, panting breath on his face, saw her flushed cheeks. She got his trousers open. Her hot hand was on him. Oh, Jesus. She said, squeezing him, and she slid down his body, running her hands over his shirt. Listen, Meredith. Just let me. Just for a minute. And then her mouth was on him. She was always good at this. Images flooding back to him, the way she liked to do it in dangerous places. While he was driving on the freeway, in the men's room at a sales conference, on the beach at Napili at night, uh, the secret impulsive nature, the secret heat. When he was first introduced to her, the exec at Contact had said, she's one of the great cocksuckers. Meredith. God, you taste good. Meredith. Shh, I know you like it. I do like it, but I... Then let me... As she sucked him, she was unbuttoning his shirt, pinching his nipples. He looked down and saw her straddling his legs, her head bent over him. Her blouse was open, her breasts swung free. She reached up, took his hands, and pulled them down, placing them on her breasts. In that moment, he felt a burst of anger, a kind of male fury that he was pinned down, that she was dominating him, and he wanted to be in control, to take her. He sat up and grabbed her hair roughly, lifting her head and twisting his body. She looked in his eyes and saw instantly. Yes, she said, and she moved sideways so he could sit up beside her. He slipped his hand between her legs. He felt warmth and lacy underpants. He tugged at them. She wriggled, helping him, and he slid them down to her knees. Then she kicked them away. Her hands were caressing his hair, her lips at his ear. Yes, yes. For a moment, he was startled. She was not very wet, and then he remembered that, too. The way she would start, her words and body immediately passionate, but this central part of her slower to respond, taking her eventual arousal from his. She was always turned on most by his desire for her, and always came after he did. Sometimes within a few seconds, but sometimes he struggled to stay hard while she rocked against him, pushing to her own completion, lost lost in her own private world while he was fading. Oh, God, I love the way you feel. Usually, there was no way to get out of it. 
In an instant of harsh clarity, he saw himself in the room, a panting, middle-aged married man with his trousers down around his knees, bent over a woman on an office couch that was too small. What the hell was he doing? He looked at her face, saw the way the makeup cracked at the corners of her eyes, around her mouth. She had her hands on his shoulders, tugging him toward her. Oh, please. No. No. And then she turned her head aside and coughed. Something snapped in him. He sat back coldly. You're right. He got off the couch and pulled up his trousers. We shouldn't do this. What are you doing? You want this as much as I do. You know you do. No, we shouldn't do this, Meredith. He was buckling his belt, stepping back. She stared at him in dazed disbelief, like someone awakened from sleep. You're not serious. This isn't a good idea. I don't feel good about it. You fucking son of a bitch. You bastard. You prick. You fucking bastard. You shit. You bastard. (laughs) The end, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I have drawn some conclusions. I thought that she was giving him oral sex because of all that stuff about her mouth. But then... He, she must have just been kissing him because she is unbuttoning her shirt at the, his shirt at the same time. And I'm just like thinking of the, the, like the physics of that. I don't think she could actually be up unbuttoning his shirt. I don't know. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, he does use the he does use sucking to describe it, but he doesn't specifically say what she's sucking. And yeah, and later on, it's definitely like that never comes up that like they actually did a sex act so i guess not but you can understand why i was confused right yeah 100 percent. all right now the coughing during the act was apparently really (laughs) important as we will explore in this next dramatic reading which is um a few days later when tom is having dinner with um fernandez his lawyer and she asks him about what actually went on in the office So I will be reading the role of Tom, and Caroline will be reading Fernandez. She wiped her chin with her napkin. You know, you never really told me why you stopped at the end. My friend Max Dorfman says I set it all up. Uh Uh-huh, Fernandez said. Do you think that too? I don't know. I was just asking what you were feeling at the time, at the time you pulled away. (laughs) He shrugged. I just didn't want to. Uh Uh-huh. Didn't feel like it when you got there, huh? No, I didn't. Then he said, you really want to know what it is? She coughed. She coughed? Fernandez said. Sanders saw himself again in the room, his trousers down around his knees, bent over Meredith on the office couch. He remembered thinking, what the hell am I doing? And she had her hands on his shoulders, tugging him towards her. Oh, please. No, no. And then she turned her head aside and coughed. The cough was what did it. That was when he sat back and said, you're right, and got off the couch. Fernandez frowned. I have to say, Fernandez said, a cough doesn't seem like a big deal. It was. I mean, you can't cough at a time like that. Why? Is this some etiquette I don't know about? Fernandez said. No coughing in the clinch? It's not that at all. It's just what it means. I'm sorry, you've lost me. What does a cough mean? 
you know, women always think that men don't know what's going on. There's this whole idea that men can't find the place. They don't know what to do. All that stuff. How men are stupid about sex. I don't think you're stupid. What does a cough mean? A cough means you're not involved. She raised her eyebrows. That seems a little extreme. It's just a fact. I don't know. My husband has bronchitis. He coughs all the time. Not at the last moment he doesn't. She paused, thinking about it. Well, he certainly does right afterward. He breaks out in a fit of coughing. We always laugh about how he does that. Right after is different. But at the moment, right in the intense moment, I'm telling you, nobody coughs. More images flash through his mind. Her cheeks turn red, her neck is blotchy, or her upper chest. Nipples no longer hard. They were hard at first, but not now. The eyes get dark, sometimes purple below. Lips swollen. Breathing changes. Sudden surging heat. Shift in the hips. Shifting rhythm. Tension, but something else. Something liquid. Forehead frowning. Wincing. Biting. So many different ways, but nobody coughs, he said again. And then he felt a kind of sudden embarrassment and pulled his plate back and took a bite of pasta. He wanted a reason not to say more because he had the feeling that he had overstepped the rules. There was still this area, this kind of knowledge, this awareness that everyone pretended didn't exist. Fernandez was staring at him curiously. Did you read about this somewhere? He shook his head, chewing. Do men discuss it, things like this? He shook his head, no. Women do. I know, he swallowed. But anyway, she coughed, and that's why I stopped. She wasn't involved, and I was very angry about it, I guess. I mean, she was lying there, panting and moaning, but she was really uninvolved. And I felt... Exploited? Something like that. Manipulated. Sometimes I think maybe if she hadn't coughed right then... Sanders shrugged. Maybe I should ask her. Yup. Okay, that is the most insane thing in the whole book. Are we agreed? <laughs> I don't... I mean... It's in the top five. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what is even, what is even that line? First of all, it's, it, it sort of implies that everything he's been saying all along about her taking advantage of him and et cetera is kind of bullshit. You know, I mean, again, and I'm not advocating that bosses should, you know, try to start relationships with people who work underneath them. I but mean, it's no, just I, I think what you're saying is that he was totally asking for it. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I mean, the thought, pro- as a misandrist, I guess I have to actually <laughs> but, oh my God. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit that, like, I, I feel like his purpose is literally to be the not all men man, to be like, he's a good guy, he works really hard, like, he has a wife who has a good job, and he has these kids and he just like he keeps his head down and he does his shit and then stuff like this happens and people try to accuse him because he's a man but to be honest like nothing about his experience in that office makes me feel bad for him like essentially the only reason he doesn't fuck her is because he thinks he's gonna get in trouble and because he's like not super into it not because he resents that she's dominating him yeah not because he's devoted to his wife and kids not because he knows that it's a bad thing to do and he shouldn't do it like literally he's just like kind of not feeling it and disinterested and then gets mad that she's not more interested so he stops like why am i rooting for him (laughs) 
but don't, aren't you worried about whether he gets his millions of dollars of options? Yeah, like there's like nothing, nothing about it would be one thing if if they had like if Creighton had made him be like super devoted to his wife or been like super against it or been like, no, like you can't do this. This is wrong. And like pushed her away right to begin with. And it all like blew up into this. I would be like, oh, okay. Like I understand. Like he's a good guy, whatever. But he, he's not like literally <laughs> he's just like, mm, I don't think she's into me enough. So I'm not going to have sex with her. And that's that. Right. I mean, and later, his whole case is like, I felt like that she was pressuring me that if I didn't have sex with her, I, I would lose my job. And he, I mean, that's clearly like what he comes up with later. Yeah, it's it's totally post facto. And um, I mean, I just she is terrible. She is the worst. But he yeah. is the worst worst. And he's boring. He didn't even do anything interesting, like get plastic surgery to look like somebody's daughter. Oh, and I think we for, we should mention just briefly, there's Max, who is a magical disabled sexual harasser, who is like mm-hmm. the older man who um, is, who just gives Tom advice like, I think you secretly wanted this. And, um, and, and he is also like just old school and he can just say whatever he wants to ladies and they giggle and they're into it. So, you know, wonderful. But, um, yeah. So, but I think if we're ready for the afterword, I think this does give some insight on, as to why Crichton picked this protagonist. Yep. No. Okay. So I will dramatically read the afterword. The episode related here is based on a true story. Its appearance in a novel is not intended to deny the fact that the great majority of harassment claims are brought by women against men. On the contrary, the advantage of a role reversal story is that it may enable us to examine aspects concealed by traditional response and conventional rhetoric. However readers respond to this story, it is important to recognize that the behavior of the two antagonists mirrors each other like a Rorschach inkblot. The value of the Rorschach test lies in what it tells us about ourselves. And so then um, I'll just blah, 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 skip the middle paragraph. In addition, I am indebted to a number of attorneys, human relations officers, individual employees, and corporate officials who provided valuable perspectives on this evolving issue. It is characteristic of the extreme sensitivity surrounding any discussion of sexual harassment that everyone I talked to asked to remain anonymous. So essentially, he's saying, this really happened. However you interpret it, that's just your brain doing what it does. And furthermore, I have a lot of people who agree with me who I can't quote because feminists are scary, I guess. So it's, he's making the, the lurkers support me an email argument. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, so we were Googling because we were like, oh, I wonder if he ever like said what true story this was based on. And it looks like no, but he did write a blog post about how many feminists attack this book, but after he read their criticisms, he could tell that they hadn't actually read the book. Um, We read it, by the way, Michael Crichton's ghost, if you are listening. We read it, and we have some problems. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and actually, we were talking earlier about whether we should try to have, get our Ouija board and have a seance to ask the ghost of Michael Crichton what if he can, like, probably all these people are dead now because there is an after an Animal House style af- postscript to the book, which explains what everybody in the, every boring person in this book went on to do. And at least one or two of them are dead now. So probably by now they're all dead. So he might be able to tell us. But then we also decided that if we could talk to 
the ghost of Michael Crichton, we'd probably just want to talk about dinosaurs. Right. It's true. All right, let's move on to our would you rathers. Would you rather fuck Meredith or fuck Tom? This is this is by the fuck Mary kill rule, right? Where if you fuck them and you never have to see them again. Yeah, how, sure. Okay, I, then I pick. To. No, the, <laughs> I, well, I never want to see either of these people, but <laughs> right. I think Mer- Meredith is obviously would be more interesting um, to have sex with, and then um, I she would I would never hear from her again, so she couldn't like set me up with some horrible sexual harassment allegation. Yeah, by the same token, um, I would obviously have to go with Meredith because if I'm just having anonymous sex with one of these assholes, I would rather it be someone of the gender that I tend to find myself sexually attracted to. So, Meredith. I mean, I'm straight, but I'm also choosing Meredith. Um, She sounds pretty hot, and she sounds a lot more, like, good at sex than Tom does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she does seem she she does seem to think that Tom is better at sex than whoever than the guy whose name I've forgotten that she was having an affair with. But he was an old dude with glasses, oh my so God. you know how those are. Gross. All right, so uh, Meredith, if you're listening, I guess give us a call. I don't know. <laughs> um, next up, would you rather work for Digicom in Seattle or work on the assembly line in their Malaysian factory? Um. I think that I would rather work for Digicom in Seattle entirely because I've always wanted to visit Seattle and I feel like if Digicom really hangs in there with the cell phones like they were talking about, they probably would have hit it pretty big as cell technology continued to evolve and there'd be a lot of good money in that and... Yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty... I mean, it seems like it's a pretty shitty situation no matter which of the two options you choose. So I'll choose the one that makes me richer. Um, I, I don't think, like, in reality, I don't want to be a Malaysian assembly line worker. But I will tell you, the only person in this book who seemed like they might actually be kind of cool was Jafar. So I will pick Malaysia. Yeah, I mean, um, I've heard that Malaysia is the new Thailand in terms of, um, you know, for American tourists. So... You know, obviously not their assembly lines, but it would probably be pretty cool <laughs> to, to visit for a while. Well, if we're both there, we can hang out, hang out with Jafar. You know, we just do it for the summer. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to join you and work in Malaysia. It just, it would be cool to visit there for a little while. And I feel like if I worked at Digicom, I'd probably end up getting sexually harassed. And I don't want to deal with that. Oh, okay. Do we get to play with the virtual reality machine? Um, I mean, only only if you sneak in at night. Okay, that doesn't seem worth it. <laughs> like like Tom did. All right, and last up, would you rather meet your spouse at work or on ChristianMingle.com? Well, there's no question. Obviously, I'd rather meet them on ChristianMingle.com uh, so that I could be assured of their values. And, you know, a good Christian wouldn't sexually harass like some of the people at the work in this story and yeah um i know that louise met her spouse at work when he asked her out five times and she finally said yes and in today's new environment that would not be appropriate um so i don't know why he had to ask her five times for her to like him maybe 
um, that would not have occurred. But anyway, let's just go with ChristianMangle.com. Yes. Um, our sponsor, ChristianMangle.com, appreciates your answer, Caroline. Your check will be in the mail very soon. And I, of course, also would prefer to meet my spouse on ChristianMingle.com. I don't know why anyone would do anything else. All right, let's move on to some real quick reader's advisory and suggest some things to read or perhaps watch on television instead of reading uh, this book. And we've, we've already brought up the new season of Community with its outdated virtual reality that I think is an excellent thing to watch instead of dealing with this book. As well as many episodes of The Office deal with similar vibes, but in a much more intentionally funny way. Yes, and if you like virtual reality, also the 90s cartoons reboot and The Real Adventures of Johnny Quest have big 90s virtual reality components, and I would heartily recommend watching those instead of reading this book. And I mean, if you do want to watch a film depiction of sexual harassment that is maybe more entertaining than this, I would recommend Nine to Five starring Dolly Parton. And and I would also watch a movie in which Dolly Parton and her buddies um, took revenge on Tom, the sexual harasser, as happens in that movie. Um, If I was going to, I have not read this book, but um, um, reading Disclosure actually made me want to read um, Backlash by Susan Faludi, which came out in 1991 and was basically talking about the sort of horrible, um, regressive um, backlash in uh, misogyny that was occurring, um, which I think is perfectly reflected in this book. If you want to read something um, more recent, I've only read the title essay in this, but I would say that Men Explain Things to Me by Rebecca mm-hmm. Solnit, it would be very relevant to what is happening in this book. I would say if I was trying to think of like what might be a good, if you actually like want a sort of legal thriller that maybe has psychotic women in it, but like in a more interesting way, um, Carol O'Connell wrote a book called Mallory's Oracle, which is about a woman who is a hacker and is a straight up sociopath but is the um, protagonist of the series so i know some people like those quite a bit um i don't read any adult thrillers at all so i have no idea i looked this book up on novelist and it suggested a few books such as the fear index by robert harris shockwave by clive cussler and running from the law by lisa scottaline or scottaline You know, so if you maybe look up those, I don't know. On the other hand, if you've been listening to this and you're like, yeah, Tom's got a point, then I think what you are looking (laughs) to read is probably just like MRA forums on the internet, forums on the internet. Um, I think you probably, you know, have taken the red pill and and you know what's happening. You know about our misandrist agenda and you're not fooled. Um, check out worstbestsellers.com. We'll have a few more uh, titles up there under our, our reader's advisory page for this episode. But eh, maybe, maybe just, yeah, just watch The Office and Community and The Double Worst yep. Prada. Or yeah. you know what? Fuck all this. Watch Jurassic Park. That movie's awesome. Yes, it, it is. is. <laughs> it holds up really well. Get ready for Jurassic World. Yes! Uh, that said, we'll move on to our candy pairing, where we suggest a candy to go with your book um, or movie. You know, this is what you should eat when you go see Jurassic World in the theater, maybe. Well, I accidentally picked up something that I thought were peeps, but were actually peepsters. And this is what I was actually literally eating as I read this book. 
they are chocolate covered and you would think that that meant they had peeps marshmallows in the middle but they don't they just have a really sort of sweet um middle there's two components of this candy the chocolate and the filling neither of them taste very good and even as you're reading them you're like this is really weird and kind of upsetting um (laughs) but i did finish the whole bag so i think that that is relevant to disclosure um i've selected a british candy bar called the yorkie bar and its tagline was until like two years ago its tagline was it's not for girls and it was literally just supposed to be a manly candy bar because other candy bars were too dainty and delicate and I, I think that candy bar answers the question, but what about the men? Which is what <laughs> this book is asking. And I would choose Lifesavers Holes, which uh, if you don't remember in the early and mid 90s, Lifesavers Holes were exactly what they sound like, uh, a candy that was marketed as the center of Lifesavers. And uh, it was a useless 90s candy that was trying to be new and edgy, but was really just the usual cr- crap in slightly different packaging and probably for the sake of this the boring pedantic guys in this book they would be a boring pedantic mint flavor all right excellent choices stock up on those before your next trip to the cinema (laughs) and now we'll move on to a game called the rock paper snicked in which kate will say who Dwayne the rock johnson would be if he were in this book and I will say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book. And Caroline will choose either The Rock or Snicked or Paper, which is to leave this fine work of literature just as it is. All right. If The Rock were in this book, he would be another executive working for Digicom. And he's newish, but he wins the CEO's favor because he's The Rock and everyone loves him. So he's promoted to vice president instead of Meredith or Tom and ends up forming a close friendship with Stephanie Kaplan, who is the woman who in the actual book uh, ends up vice president after Meredith is fired. Uh, Together, The Rock and Stephanie work to revamp the company and promote a more inclusive, less sexist workplace. Meredith is eventually fired for sexually harassing all those dudes, as are all the programming bros who were assholes, who were in the book, but we didn't really talk about them. They were just assholes. Um, Tom stews in his own passive misogyny until The Rock sits him down one day and forces him to admit that he's generally unhappy in his life, and he projects those feelings onto the women around him. So he despairs a little over his terrible life choices and then leaves his wife and kids to go on a quest to find himself and probably dies somewhere remote where he's doing a lot of yoga. Um, No one cares or misses him. And then The Rock becomes the CEO, and he's the best CEO ever, and through his tireless campaign to make the programming world less sexist, Gamergate never happens, making this truly the best possible timeline. Oh, The Rock is so good. He that is. is very compelling. <laughs> All right, well, if Wolverine were in this book, I think he would just kind of happen to be passing through Seattle, because you know how he is, he just likes to roam around wherever interesting plots might be happening. So he roams to Seattle, he meets Tom in a bar, hears all about this, and he suggests that instead of taking this all the way to court, Meredith and Tom should settle their differences in unarmed combat. Um, PC Phil says no, because he's the worst, but then they decide to fight in the virtual reality environment. Um, Wolverine gets gets the programmers to put, like, a giant robot and some dinosaurs in there, although they're, you know, kind of 2D and weird-looking. But they're in there. Both Meredith and Tom are virtually killed, which resolves nothing, but it's very satisfying for all the bystanders, um, especially the reader. 
Oh, so am I judging these? Yes. Yeah. Man, you know, the first The Rock scenario, that is so, like, such a great outcome for everybody involved. And I think that that's wonderful. But I just feel like Wolverine and them dying in virtual combat is so much more viscerally satisfying. So I have to go with Snake. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, Dwayne, you're great. <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's he's just a little too perfect. Like, is he even real? We don't know. Guys, what if Dwayne The Rock Johnson isn't real and he's just virtual reality? Shut up, Renata. Don't ever <laughs> say that again. I mean, I'm just saying, has any of us ever met him? Not yet, but maybe one day. <laughs> maybe one day he'll be the guest on this podcast. <laughs> what would you make Dwayne The Rock Johnson read? Oh, whatever he wanted to read. <laughs> uh... You know, like the novelization of the Mummy Scorpion King, maybe. I don't know. Amazing. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> Just putting that out there. <laughs> Call us. <laughs> uh, okay, let's move on from our swooning over Dwayne Rick Johnson for the moment and talk about our moral of the story. All right. I would say the moral of the story is hashtag not all men. And I would say that while so many books have had the moral that rich white men are the worst, as I've been listening to your podcast from the beginning, that's very often the moral. Mm -hmm. This book told me that rich white men can be awesome, but women are always the worst. I'm going to say man creates dinosaurs. Dinosaurs eat man. Woman inherits the earth. Woo! That was this book, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes. It, was basically, it was basically. If only. Thing. If only. All right. Um, now, uh, normally we would turn to Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte would offer his opinions on the book. But, um, you know, Caroline pointed out that in the name of political correctness, we should really have a woman cat offer her opinions. And she has offered the opinions of her cat, Hadassah. Okay, yeah, I would say, well, um, Hadassah is a, I would say she's a misandrist cat. She has lived in a male cat dominated environment where she did not thrive. And that is why she has come to live with me. So I think that that does um, affect her opinion. But I would say I agree with Hadassah that there is a secret feminist, or I'm sorry, I don't agree with Hadassah that there is a secret feminist message embedded in the book. But it's really interesting to me that she read it on that level. I'm glad she enjoyed it. Yeah, I was going to say, it sounded like she really liked it a lot more than we did. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad I'm glad someone liked it, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you might want to watch out for her, though. Um, just if you get any other pets, it seems like she might be taking some ideas about like, how to set them up. I, I think she really strongly feels that Meredith is the protagonist of the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, good for her. All right, thank you for joining us, Hadassah. Now, uh, do any humans have any closing thoughts? So just this one random, totally bizarre closing thought, which is that uh, so when they're in the virtual reality system stalking like the, the guy that Meredith's having the affair with at the other company, the one of the executives of the other company also comes into the virtual reality and also watches the executive deleting all of the files and covering his tracks 
And then no comment is ever made about that again. And then in the afterward, they talk about how he died. He became CEO of the company and then died tragically in a car accident six months later. <laughs> and it Whoa. just seemed very strange. And no, there was no reason to include it. You know, yeah. why not? Conspiracy. Maybe the Stephanie's son who was uh, working for Arthur Fred actually had it out for that guy. Maybe. Yeah, I would actually be interested to read like a sequel or companion novel to this that's just Stephanie Kaplan's point of view. (laughs) Oh my god, I absolutely would. I would also like to read the sequel fan fiction where Arthur Friend comes back from Nepal and logs into his email and is like, what the fuck? Yeah, the alternate version, it just alternates between Stephanie Kaplan, Arthur Friend, and Jafar. amazing yes okay well so that's what we'd like to read um michael Crichton's ghost if you're listening i guess <laughs> see about that <laughs> and uh thank you all so much for listening thanks to caroline for joining us um we would also like to remind you guys that kate and i are still both raising money for a few good causes um i'm raising money in the purple stride cancer walk for pancreatic cancer as well as the Bullathon for the Kentucky Abortion Access Network. Although I think by the time we release this podcast, that one will have actually already happened. But I'm sure you can still donate money to them. Hannah, I'm raising money for the Massachusetts Nami Walk. And you can get more information about that at worstbestsellers.com. And if you donate to any one of our three charity events, um, we will hook you up with some cool bonuses, which you maybe heard about last episode or can read about at worstbestsellers.com. You can email us at worstbestsellers at gmail.com if you have further thoughts you'd like to share or books you'd like to put on our radar for an eventual future episode. You can like us on Facebook. We're the Worst Bestsellers. You can follow us on Twitter, where we're Worst Bestseller with no S. And you can uh, subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave us a review on there if you like us. Um, Maybe sign your name as a friend if you happen to have that as your (laughs) university-assigned email address. That'd be cool. Also, if there's another way that you get your podcasts that you would like us to look into, looking into, I guess, so that we can provide worst bestsellers on that platform as well, please let us know. I guess if you're listening to this, maybe you're listening to a friend's version of it or something. I don't know. I'm just putting it out there. it's just being broadcast over your virtual reality environment. (laughs) (laughs) And your avatar has no way of changing the sound, so you're just trapped listening to this. But let us know. We'd love to put it up on other things that are more accessible to you. You can follow me on Twitter at 14across. You can follow me at Renata Snacks. And I am at Caroline Pruitt, P-R-U-E-T-T. I also um, work at the blog fantasticfangirls.org and I contribute to panels.net, which is a comic book related blog. And they're both uh, great. Especially if you, if you like Wolverine, like I do. Oh yeah, there's <laughs> lots of Wolverine in both. <laughs> All right, um, we'll be back in two weeks with City of Bones by Cassandra Clare. We hope you are excited about that because we definitely are. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> All right, 
Thanks for listening, you wonderful misandrous. Bye. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Shut up, Renata. Don't ever <laughs> say that again.